Good morning, everyone. You glad you're in the house of the Lord? It's a good place to be. We've heard some marvelous thoughts in the songs that we have just sung. And reflecting on hymnology, I'm not uh, skilled or educated in that field like Brother Dana is, but hymnology is, uh, comes forth with the truth of God's Word in more of a poetic nature. And sometimes those poetic expressions are taken in a literal sense without understanding the symbolism behind them. Like burdens are lifted at Calvary. Now that's a marvelous statement. But how are they lifted at Calvary? And that's where we have to go, Brother Jim, to the doctrine of Calvary to understand that. It's not some mystical thing that we can sing and somehow it radiates and it draws us closer like that. But it's through the Word of God that we understand what took place at Calvary as to how it lifts our burdens. And is that not a shame then that in today's churches uh, they do not want doctrinal preaching? They want just simple preaching. They don't want to have these great mysteries explained. But it's through the understanding of these mysteries that we are enabled to grasp what is taking place in the songs that we sing. Won't charge you anything for that. Thanks for the songs, Dana. Do a marvelous job. Today's message is number seven in the series of messages on the subject of the mystery of Christian suffering. The title of the message today is The Purpose in Christian Suffering, and that being Identity with Christ. Identity with Christ. I have several passages of Scripture which we'll point you to either in your Bibles or on the back of your bulletins that we want to read that will form the foundation for our thoughts today. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Don't let that run in one ear and out the other now. Let me read it again. For as much then as Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves or be prepared with that same mindset. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin or selfishness, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Then in the fourth chapter of 1 Peter, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached, for the name of Christ, happy are you. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he's evil spoken of, but on your part he's glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody. 
in other men's matters. Now watch this expression. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, there is a distinction between the common sufferings which all men are exposed to and the peculiar sufferings which are limited to that of a Christian. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls unto him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Now, one more passage in Philippians 1, verses 29 and 30. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Now the pieces of our puzzle have begun to take shape. Those of you that are here in person listening to this, you can see on the board how many pieces have been added from the time that we first started several weeks ago. In the first four messages, we completed the four sides of the outside framework and pointed out that these are absolutely essential to hold to all four of them if we are to understand the biblical definition and purpose and mystery of human suffering. In the fifth and sixth messages, then, we added six individual pieces which covered the reasons and causes why humans suffer. They're here on the board at my left. Up to this point, though, we have been dealing with men as members of the common race of Adam, believers and unbelievers. Today, we will go to a higher plane or move to the center of the puzzle. And we will deal with those who are believers, who make up the new special race of the second Adam, and who are destined to habitat the new heavens and the new earth. Not all are going to habitat the new heavens and the new earth, only those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the called out sons of God who are called upon to suffer before they enter their heavenly reward. In the next two lessons or messages, we will seek to discover the purpose and the meaning in Christian suffering. Now, why do Christians suffer? You were asked that question. What answer would you give? For you are called upon, if you're a Christian, to be ready to give a reason of the hope that you have within you. And that's in the context in Peter of suffering. When an unbeliever or somebody else comes to you and you're suffering, and they say, how do you handle this? Would you be able to explain to them why Christians suffer? 
When we suffer as one of God's children, do we understand the reason? Now, while the Bible does not allow us to give a specific reason for every particular instance of Christian suffering, it does identify two basic reasons for Christian suffering. These two reasons are found throughout the Scriptures in general and in 1 Peter in particular. The book of 1 Peter is a book devoted to suffering and explaining the meaning of Christian suffering in particular. These two reasons as to why believers or Christians suffer are first, identification with Christ. Christian suffering identifies us with and connects us to the sufferings of Christ, whereby we are enabled to enter into and appreciate what Paul states in Philippians 3.10 as the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, the word fellowship here in the Scripture means to share something in common with another. So that when someone is telling about something that has happened to them, and we realize that the same thing has happened to us, we say, I can relate to that. Or, I know what you're talking about. Or, I can identify with that. These expressions reveal that we are sharing a common experience. This is fellowship. So that we are called upon to enter into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. That we can relate to the experience that He went through, through our own level of suffering. That His suffering is not something isolated from ours, but now we are in a living, vital union with Him. He is the head, we are the body. He can be touched with the feelings of our suffering. Now, the second reason is found in Scripture for Christian suffering, and that is to develop Christian character through discipline. God's design in Christian suffering is to administer discipline in order to produce a godly character. For it's only that type of character that's going to live in the new heaven and the new earth. There will be no imperfect character placed in the new heaven and the new earth or the afterlife that will not be perfect. If it was placed there, then it would mean that heaven would not be perfect. There must be a perfection of Christian character before we are placed in our eternal abode. Now, this discipline has both a negative and a positive aspect. In the negative sense, 
Christian discipline comes in the form of chastisement or misconduct. And in the positive sense, it serves to purify us from sin and an improper love of this present world. Also, it trains us to live in a righteous manner to enable us to enjoy our new home in the new heavens and earth. When I moved from southwest Missouri, the Ozarks, to Birmingham, Alabama, it took me a while to learn and make an adjustment to my new home. Uh, people here in the south do things a little bit different than us hillbillies in the Ozarks. So you have to learn those terms. Remember, I had a man in my church uh, came in all bent over one day. Obviously, something had happened to his back. After the service, uh, I uh, asked, said, uh, Farrell, uh, what's your trouble today? He said, oh, preacher, I carried a load of hogs to market. And I said, well, why didn't you take them in your truck and you wouldn't have hurt yourself? I had to learn terminology that we don't carry things like hogs in Missouri. We put them in a truck and we then take them somewhere. But now then, I'm using that same category that if I want to take you to a grocery store, well, then I carry you. I, I still like the Ozarkian terminology better. I still have a problem getting adjusted to my new home here, but I'm learning. In your present state right now, you would not enjoy heaven to perfection. There's still enough love of the world, the flesh, and the devil to keep you from enjoying heaven as the saints in heaven are now enjoying it, as Christ is enjoying it. So while we are justified by grace through faith, we are also sanctified, or our character is changed from one degree of glory into another until we are conformed into the moral character of Jesus Christ that will enable us to enjoy our God forever and praise Him throughout all the endless ages to come. So discipline is the reason for this. In this lesson today, we will seek to understand how our suffering identifies us with Christ and His suffering. And then in the next message, we will examine how our suffering purifies us from sin, weans us from this present world, and increases our desire for the world to come. So on your board here, if you can see that far, we have it under the title of Christian Suffering. Number one, identification with Christ. And number two, character development. Having stated that, let's jump into the task before us. The whole Christian life is to a large degree a question of how we respond to suffering. I'm going to repeat that. I didn't just pull that out of the blue. After many years of careful reflection upon the Word, the whole of Christian living is to a large degree a question of how you and I respond to trials, afflictions, and suffering. 
Therefore, it is of great importance to understand how our suffering bonds or connects us to Christ. It is this bonding that gives meaning to our sufferings and enables us to look upon them as constructive rather than as destructive. A balanced understanding of the doctrine of the cross is necessary to achieve this. What went on on the cross? What's the cross mean? The death of Christ on the cross has meaning in that it accomplished something. You believe that? Jesus died as the just one in the place of the unjust that he might save his people from their sins. While his death revealed the love of God towards sinners, It was a love that accomplished the purpose for which he came into this world. It was a saving love, not a foolish love. When we see a person risk their life to dive into the water and rescue a drowning victim, we are impressed with their selfless love and heroism. But suppose another person tells a group of onlookers that they are going to show them how much they love them. They get into a boat, go out into some deep water, and then that individual proceeds to jump out of the boat and drown. What would we think of that person? And he says, I'm going to show you how much I love you. Watch. And he jumps into the water and drowns. What would we think of that person? We would call him a fool. For his action achieved nothing but the loss of his own life. The death of Jesus Christ was not an act of foolish love. A blind leap in the dark but was a powerful saving love in that it guaranteed that a large number of Adam's race would be saved. It has meaning to it. He shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. However, many Christians think of the cross only in the means of justification, and they use the broad term salvation. Salvation, incidentally, is an umbrella term. It takes in many doctrinal expressions. But many Christians, we are prone to think of it only in the fact that our sins are forgiven, and that's the extent of the cross. And we have not thought much about what it means to take up our cross and die daily. Or, to use that rather unusual expression in Scripture, to, quote, fill up the sufferings of Christ, unquote. That is a unique concept that I would encourage some to read it and look into the implications of that, that our sufferings somehow are completing the sufferings of Christ. I haven't time to delve into that today. 
Long before Jesus died on the cross, He defined the meaning of death on a cross. Remember, we're on the other side of the cross. There were people that He talked to before He died on the cross in which He used the expression, the cross. And what it meant to die on a cross. And that it, He defined it as meaning... That of dying to self or self-denial. In Luke 9, 23 and 24, we read, He said unto them all, If any man will come after me, let him what? Deny himself and take up his cross daily. There's the definition of the cross before the concept of substitution and imputation and satisfaction was introduced into it. And follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same will save it. Here the cross has the meaning of living a life of submission unto the will of God. It's denying our ambitions and having them eradicated by the providence of God and God's design for our life begins to shape up rather than our earthly plans and ambitions. Pardon me a moment. Let us recall what we learned about the sufferings of Jesus in message number four. And there we have, in which that he, we read, though he were a son, Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And there we observe the meaning of the word obedience in the original language is, quote, to submit obedience to an authority beyond oneself, whether human or divine. Jesus and his humanity, through the appointed providential trials and sufferings appointed him by God, learn to submit his human will to the higher authority than his human will. He looked to God. If it be possible, let this what? Cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Now, he learned that through the providential things that were assigned to him in the form of sufferings. Not just the cross, but throughout his entire lifetime. You and I are in that same thing. If we're going to learn to submit to the authority of God's will, that will come through divine appointments of sufferings. Though Jesus was the Son of God when He became the God-man, He learned experimentally what it means to submit His will as a man to the higher will of His Father. And this came about through His trials and His sufferings. And in doing such, Christ can now, Brother Asa, experimentally share something in common with the people which he came to save. For they are a suffering people. He can have fellowship with us. He can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. The word infirmities, again, refers not to sinfulness, but to our weaknesses, our limitations as finite creatures. So just as Jesus learned and took on human likeness in his sufferings, 
we as Christians learn and take on Christ-likeness from our sufferings. Let that sink in for a moment. We're learning something. Just as Jesus learned what it's like to suffer as a human being, we as human beings are learning from our sufferings what it is to be Christ-like. The elect of God have been predestined to be conformed to the moral image of Christ. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And that moral image is one of perfect obedience or submission to His will, to that of the Father. Christ entered His state of glorification after He traveled His own appointed path of sufferings. Now, don't try to emulate Christ in His sufferings because His sufferings are unique and different from your sufferings, just like my sufferings are different than yours. We may share some things in common, but there may be some things appointed for me that you don't have to go through. And there may be things that God has appointed for you that I don't have to go through. God help us that we may learn what these appointments are for and glory in them. Every believer has been appointed an ongoing path of trials and sufferings which shall lead them to the state of eternal glorification. And in each step of the path, the believer is to learn to submit their will to the authority of God's will. It is in this light, then, that Peter could say in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, think it not a strange thing concerning the fiery trial that is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. I stop a moment and ask you, are there some things that are troubling your mind this day? Is it related to physical things of the body? Is it related to the emotional things of the soul? Are there things that you are troubled about? If you're not, could I meet you in the back room? I'd like to see how you're handling all this, okay? This passage here in Peter, would you notice that suffering is not some strange part of the Christian life that should never have occurred, but it lies at the very heart of God's plan to make us like Christ. And yet we have been so influenced by the name it and claim it and the health, wealth people that we think that Christian suffering, there's something wrong with you. And the Bible says it's the very opposite. It is that which links us to the sufferings of Christ and makes His sufferings more precious to us. We are said to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Now, while our sufferings are never desirable in themselves, remember Jesus said, if it be possible, let this pass from me. We're not sadists. We're not something that believes in cutting our flesh in order to try to achieve suffering. Sufferings in themselves we do not seek after. We are to respond to them. They are nevertheless to be treasured. James tells us in James 1, 2, and 3, 
Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing that the trying of your faith produces patience or endurance. You come to me and you say, Brother Jim, I'm struggling with little faith. Would you pray that God would increase my faith? Yeah, I will. And you'll come back to me probably in two or three weeks and say, I don't know what in the world happened. The bottom has fallen out. It seems like the whole world's caving in on me. Well, God's answering my prayer for you. Because your faith is going to develop a backbone and character that's strong only through being exposed to trials and sufferings. No easy road to heaven. No easy road to heaven. Jesus taught the same in Matthew 5, 11, and 12 when He said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. For my sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. Great is it. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Do you see when we get to the concept of rewards in heaven, it's connected with persecution here on earth and troubles and trials? People who suffer together bond together. I remember when I was pastoring in St. Louis, I called on a couple that later became one of our closest friends in their conversion. And they lived down by a river in a shack that was on stilts. And the dogs were in the yard barking. And, and I mean, there was blankets out in the yard and old worn-out cars that wouldn't run. And the door was off the front of the house. We walked in the living room and there was a sign on the wall. The family that together sweats together. That was one of those trials, my brother, which is, do I really want these people to come to my church? <laughs> but bless God, through a process of time, they came to know the Lord and cleaned themselves up, and it was a marvelous transformation of what God can do. God not only takes a person to heaven and forgives them of their sin, but He begins to clean up their character. And they change their environment in which that they live. They become appreciative of the things of the Lord. So people who then suffer together often bond together. Whenever a natural disaster such as a hurricane or an earthquake occurs, what happens? Neighbors who hardly knew each other come together. And a real community of sharing starts to take place. Let somebody have an illness in a family, a crisis, and does that not bring out the family members are rallying to their support in prayer and encouragement. People who were formerly looked upon as merely being part of an abstract humanity are now viewed as personal friends. 
Peter says we participate in Christ's sufferings when we suffer. Suffering somehow links believers to Christ in a way that no other earthly experience can do. Sufferings bring Christ near in a real and a personal way. Our Christian life then becomes living and vital when we learn to appreciate the meaning of Christ's suffering on our behalf, then we are ready to appreciate the meaning of our own suffering on His behalf. We can rejoice that our sufferings are not vain and useless. Reflect with me for a moment about life in general. Sometimes the events in our lives speed by like that of a racing car. Other times they move at a snail's pace. Can you relate to that? Sometimes life is painful. Other times it's pleasant. Sometimes it's fearful. And other times it's peaceful. Sometimes life is exciting. And sometimes, Brother Asa, life is just plain boring. But, if we can believe that whatever is occurring is working for our good, in that it is fulfilling a divine purpose, it will build character to enable us to learn contentment in whatever state we are in. I went down to the garage to take my car to get it worked on. As I pulled in the... uh, uh, lot there, I saw the uh, owner's wife lying out in the in the uh, lot, and she had turned and sprained her ankle, and it was hurting very much. And uh, she and I talked much about Christian matters, and uh, she was bemoaning though. She said, "Oh, this is the last thing I needed. I had all these things that I had to do today. This was the last thing I needed." It's the very thing that God thought you needed. You mean even a sprained ankle? A bum leg? What I'm dealing with now, a heel spur? You think I really needed that? I didn't ask the Lord for that. But I got it. And somehow it is working for my good. It is producing, Brother Dana a submission of my will to a higher will. So that I have to hobble around for a while or permanently in this life. I believe that it is God's appointment and I'll profit from it. It'll make me a stronger believer and give me backbone in character. The suffering which identifies us with Christ's suffering serves as a motivation to depart from a lifestyle of sin. 1 Peter 4.1 states, For as much then as Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Same mind as Christ. As Christ, the sinless one, learned to submit his will to the will of God, 
So we who identify with his mindset are to adopt this same attitude. Since sin is rooted in self-will, the attitude must be changed to do what God's will. And beloved, that is Christian conversion. It is being taken out of the kingdom of pride and dominion, Satan's kingdom, and taken and translated into the kingdom of God's own dear Son, which is humility and servitude. An attitude must change. Now, Peter's statement here may sound like suffering causes a person to become sinless. But we know that believers who suffer are still capable of sinning. The point which Peter makes is that if we have suffered in Christ, then we are no longer in sin's dominion. Sin's power is broken, but we still must suffer daily to humble us and produce submission. Here's an interesting thing that I came across in this study that was pointed out to me. Peter uses the word suffer in his writings in the same way that the Apostle Paul uses the word die. Put those two together. Peter makes use of suffer, and Paul refers to dying. For example, Romans 6, 5 through 10, there Paul says, If we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Paul states, whether we understand it or not at this moment, that Christ died for us, so the believer has died with Christ. Somehow, that is a statement of fact. He would also say, though, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31, I die what? Daily. Past tense and present tense here. Here in the Corinthian expression, he obviously is not referring to physical death, but a dying to the things of self-will, which brings about a departure from sinning. Get it? I die daily. And as I am dying daily in this process, it is separating me from a life of sinning. Peter, meanwhile, uses the expression suffer rather than die. And he says that the believer who has suffered in Christ must also undergo a daily suffering. Get it? I suffer daily, Peter would say. Paul would say, I die daily. This present, ongoing experience of suffering or dying 
struggling with afflictions and trials and things that don't work out is simply the outworking of the already accomplished identity with Christ in suffering. Suffering is not only past, 1 Peter 4.1, but it is also presently ongoing, 1 Peter 4.13. And Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4.10 and 11. Always bearing about in the body the what? The dying of the Lord Jesus, or the suffering of the Lord Jesus. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Some tremendous concepts there that help us. That when we're suffering, it's separating us from sin. A true believer, when suffering hits, is drawn closer to the Lord. And the closer you are to the Lord, the less possibility that you'll be practicing sin. You get that? So suffering draws us near. And it's separating us from our selfish love of this temporal world. So as we identify our sufferings with Christ's sufferings, it provides the motivating power to change our lifestyle. Peter says in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquets, and abominable idolatries. This is how we used to live. But now, through our sufferings, we have been separated from that lifestyle. And we have had the Spirit of Christ put in us, who learned submission to a higher authority through the things which He suffered. So He delegates the amount of suffering that you are undergoing this very day. And I'm ongoing. They're designed by God to separate us from our love of self and to become more like the Master. This is repeated by Paul in Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin... Live any longer therein. Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus? Were baptized into His death? Therefore we're buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in, somebody completed, newness of life. No longer revelings and murders and angers and things of, of this nature, but here is a new life. Christ's righteousness is not only imputed to us in justification, it is infused into us in sanctification so that it is a substitution on the cross and it is a substitution of His life in us. It's like He giving us a blood transfusion from His life to us. And my life is leaving the scene and it's being replaced with a new life the life of the Lord Jesus, and that's being changed from one degree of glory into another. 
And it's through the instrumentality of suffering. And thus it is that our daily suffering or dying, which progressively divorces us from sin, so that we no longer live for our pleasure, but for God's pleasure. And this brings about the spiritual growth and conformity to the likeness of Christ or His moral image. Quickly, in addition to producing spiritual growth, Christian suffering also provides a wonderful testimony to the non-Christian world. When a believer is undergoing suffering, it brings out their true character. The unbeliever observes how believers struggle with God and yet maintain their devotion to God. The Roman centurion observed that on the cross. Say it again, the unbeliever observes how believers struggle with God and yet maintain their devotion to God. This makes the unbeliever realize that the suffering believer has something which he or she does not possess. When Jesus was struggling through his sufferings on the cross, he continued to trust God even though he felt forsaken by God. My God, my God! He never ceased to trust. The cry of a man unto a higher Creator. My God, my God. But the feeling of being abandoned, but still He's trusting. And the Father is sustaining. He also said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His suffering ended with complete trust in God with the words, Father, into thy hands I commend my what? My spirit. Now that made an impact. That made an impact. The impact which this had on the Roman centurion was such that he said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Through all of his pain, his questions, and his doubts, Job would say, Listen, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me. If you discover this coming week, or I discover this coming week, that I have a terminal cancer, How will I respond to that? Then the words of Job is no longer just theory of a black and white page. If this is the instrument which God has ordained for my homecoming, I'm going to trust Him. The old Puritan, Brother Jim, I don't know why you read that story, was stricken with a terminal disease. And it really knocked the props out from under him for a couple of weeks. And he was reflecting on the cross in his writings and he began to meditate that the cross was the instrument of death designed to take the Son back to home in heaven. And he said, if my terminal cancer, or whatever it was, has been ordained of God, it's the instrument for my home going. 
He said, it's good. It's good. Now, folks, this is practical Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. This gets down where the rubber meets the road. So in the context of suffering, Peter says, But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Be ready. Be ready. The believer's response to suffering provides a testimony to unbelievers. And when they ask how we're able to stand up under our sufferings, we are given the opportunity to explain the hope that we have found in the gospel message. Paul regarded it as a privilege to suffer in that it opened a door of opportunity to witness to the faithfulness of God. Got it? How many of you like to be a better witness? Hmm? You sure? Then if God puts you in the fiery furnace, you'll come out witnessing. For He'll grant you grace in that, and that'll make an impact in the lives of others. We put three men in that furnace, but there's another one in there. looks like the Son of God. Won't get off into that. The presence of Christ begins to radiate out of the life of a suffering believer. And there's a wonderful attraction to that. The old rugged cross, the emblem of what? Suffering. Shame. And folks, that's the way the church progresses. It's through suffering. It's not through games and gimmicks. It's not through buildings, big buildings, and making an impression on the world that way. It's how they suffer. And the greatest advances in the history of the church have been in the time of the suffering of the church. That's why we have so little biblical Christianity here in the United States. But we're a land of plenty. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, It is given unto you in the behalf, and that word behalf means name, in the name of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. And that's the same word, name, to suffer for His name. Tertullian, one of the church fathers, observed that, quote, the blood of the martyrs is the what? The seed of the church. The seed of the church. The growth of the church comes through a suffering church. The gospel progresses through the persecution and sufferings of the church. Suffering is a unique opportunity to share Christ with others. It is through our sufferings that others are benefited. Our dying to self produces life or encouragement in others. 2 Corinthians 4, 10 and 12, Paul says of his sufferings, always bearing about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. 
For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then, death worketh in us, but life in you. If I stand up well under suffering, it produces life or encouragement to you as a fellow believer in Christ. May, may, oh, may God spare us then that when some affliction hits us, that we say, why in the world did this have to happen to me? I just don't understand this. Why did this happen to me? Finally, suffering draws us closer to other Christians. 1 Corinthians 12:26, Paul says of the body of Christ that when one member suffers, all what? All the members suffer with it. When we hurt, the rest of the church hurts. When we suffer, we are enabled to comfort others who are suffering. Thereby, in our identifying our sufferings with Christ, we are enabled, number one, to grow closer to Christ in His grace. Number two, to share the gospel of hope with to others. And number three, to grow closer to other believers. So that all that we have said this morning explains to us that the true sufferings of a Christian is a sign of God's approval upon the life rather than a sign of His disapproval. If we suffer with Him, we're going to what? We're going to reign with Him. May God somehow take these concepts and open up our little craniums and just flood them in there. (laughs) Wow, I see this now. I tell you what, Brother Jim, it might change a lot of our prayer meetings. What's the first thing that we do when a church member has something happen to them of an adverse nature? in our prayer meetings. What's the first thing? Oh, God, get them out of this. Where do we get that idea from? It is legitimate to pray, Oh, God, be with them and grant grace to this, and if it be Thy will, heal or deliver. But, Lord, if not, grant that Your purpose produce the reason that You brought this into them. Some people wouldn't want to be prayed for like that. Because <laughs> they want to be prayed as soon as afflictions have or run to the preacher and preacher, pray that God get me out of this. Well, God put you in it. I'm going to pray that you learn something through it. And then He bring you out of it. Either in this world, Brother Bill, or in the world beyond this life. Let's pray. Father, take these studies and may they be more than just theoretical implanting of information. 
But Father, radiate them into our very moral being and make us ready to die daily, ready to suffer on a daily basis the afflictions of living in this world, knowing that as a Christian, it is for our benefit in making us more like Your Son. Grant us as a church to have a character that stands firm when adversity hits. That we might have a strong skeleton of bone marrow in which our flesh can hang upon. Increase our faith and conform us to the image of Christ, for we truly desire that He have the preeminence in all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May God bless the singing, the exposition of the Word, the prayers that have been presented this day. Let it not be a day of showtime, but it be a day of reflecting upon God in Christ Jesus. I've asked Brother Dana to come and lead us in a famous old hymn, uh, The Old Rugged Cross. Let's stand together.